Hello and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Nandita Rao Narla, Head of Technical Privacy and Governance at DoorDash, and we'll be talking about privacy threat modeling. Nandita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. I've been following the podcast and excited to be part of it. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much for being here. I know this was an interview long in the works. Um, I'm glad we were finally able to coordinate schedules and make it happen. But let's start with some basics. You know, who are you? What do you do? What's your background? And how do you end up where you are today? Sure. Um, I have an engineering background. I got an undergrad degree in computer science from India and a master's in information security from Carnegie Mellon. I worked in security consulting, mostly for Fortune 500 companies, building large-scale security, data governance, and privacy programs. Post-GDPR, I started focusing more on privacy engineering. I was part of a founding team of a privacy tech startup that built a platform that enabled threat hunting and data discovery. I joined DoorDash two years ago to build the technical privacy and governance team. Um, at DoorDash, uh, I lead a team that supports building tooling and features for privacy, privacy assurance, and privacy ops. So, is, is the makeup of the team primarily, um, you know, more on the engineering side of things? Um, it's a mix. Um, I do have engineers on the team, and also have auditors and and program managers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you started. It sounds like you started your career more, uh, you know, in sort of the traditional security space and then made the transition to focus more on privacy. What, what kind of led to that transition to focus more on privacy? So um, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was exposed to the privacy research um, in, in, in uh, Professor Laurie Craner's lab, and I fo- found it extremely interesting. Um, this was before GDPR, so there weren't a lot of privacy jobs in the market. So although my interest was in privacy, um, Security seemed like a much safer uh, position to be in, so I joined security consulting, which allowed me to do some privacy on the side. So I was one of those rare people who always wanted to do privacy um, rather than fall into privacy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, Dr. Lori Trainer was one of our you know first guests on the show. She's yes. a, she's a fantastic, and uh, I think you know the work that she's done at. Carnegie Mellon University and you know the other people that are involved in that program have probably laid the groundwork for a lot of the evolution of um, you know the privacy engineering role and and growth of it within the industry. Absolutely, she she that was like the the trigger for me to think about privacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know it it's my perspective today. I think that people graduating probably. Uh, are are having less of that concern of whether they can get a job in in, in privacy. Something that's you know really really starting to take off. All right, so starting to you know kind of transition into talking about the main topic of discussion, which is privacy threat modeling. I think a good place to jump off, especially for people who have maybe not had a career in you know privacy and privacy engineering, is what exactly is privacy threat modeling. Sure. So before we talk about privacy threat modeling, let me start by talking about what are privacy threats. So a privacy threat is an action that can cause privacy harms. Um, By privacy harms, we mean something like a negative privacy consequence. Um, Examples of privacy harms are surveillance, 
um, secondary use of data, for example, data was collected for ID verification, but is being used for identification. Um, Dan Solow's taxonomy is a great resource for understanding privacy harms. Uh, most privacy practitioners are familiar with privacy harms. And privacy threat modeling is basically assessing a representation of a system. So when we say representation of a system, think architecture diagrams, data flows, or other documentation uh, to find privacy concerns and address them proactively. Um, at a core, it involves asking four questions. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? And the last one is, did we do a good enough job? This last question is a validation and feedback loop. Um, so privacy threat modeling is typically performed in the design phase of development before any code is written. So threats can be identified and fixed early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like it's you know, essentially, uh, you know, leaning into some of the, you know, privacy design principles of being part of the, you know, early stage design process. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the ways how you can in actually enable privacy by design in practice. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously, like companies need to uh, collect and use data with also balancing the need to protect privacy and what you know role does privacy threat modeling play in this process of essentially balancing the need for the data while also the need to protect it this is actually a really good question um, collecting data and extracting value from data while respecting user privacy is a challenge for most privacy professionals uh, in the context of privacy threat modeling once you identify all the threats in a system that's in scope uh, then you decide how to address them using a structured approach. Most commonly, privacy threat modeling frameworks come with mitigation taxonomies, which give you uh, a sort of a structured way to think about strategies, design patterns, privacy enhancing technologies that can address those particular threats. So selecting the appropriate threat response from those taxonomies requires an understanding of objectives, technical architecture, resources, effort estimates, and priorities. It's um, very important to remember that data minimization or stopping data collection is one of the many strategies. And overuse of the strategy of like, let's not do this may, may, may tend to uh, focus on the privacy team as being seen as the office of no. So um, it's, it's recommended to evaluate the right mitigation strategy based on like using the mitigation taxonomy as a pick list and, and choosing the right approach, which balances both. Yeah, I mean, realistically, any business to operate and compete in the world today is, is most likely going to need to collect some kind of information about the customer and then use that to, you know, whether that's to you know, uh, drive analytics, that's going to help them understand how to serve the customer better or something, but they need to be essentially be balancing that with, uh, with, with privacy in mind as well. So ideally, like you said, the, the privacy department within the organization isn't seen as, as the people who are just, you know, constantly saying no to the data collection and actually, uh, you know, figuring out a way to work with these other stakeholders within the company to make make 
it's successful while also protecting the customer data and the, the rights of the user. Absolutely. I've, I've seen a lot of criticism coming privacy teams, um, the way of privacy teams where um, they're like seen as the wall where all good ideas go to die. <laughs> yeah. What, um, and is it typically the, you know, the, essentially the privacy team that owns this process within an organization or are there other people involved? So it depends on the organization. Um, in large organizations that are handling uh, sensitive data, I've seen dedicated privacy red teams or privacy technical review teams own the process. Uh, for organizations without dedicated teams, sometimes privacy teams own a lightweight threat modeling process and perform it as part of the PIA or DPIA process. Or most commonly, security teams own it and perform both security and privacy threat modeling together. Um, I feel this combined approach has proven very effective in terms of time commitment and coverage, provided that these teams have the right skill set. And um, based on prior experience, tackling security and privacy uh, threat modeling together was about 60% faster and resulted in better coverage than, than teams performing it in parallel or independently. Wow, that's that's a pretty big uh, efficiency gain. And then what are, you know, the typical approaches that companies follow to actually perform the process of privacy threat model? Can you kind of walk through how that works? Sure. Uh, again, like the approaches would depend on number of factors like organization size, what's the risk profile, um, very importantly, the resources available and where in the maturity is the organization. Um, most organizations sort of customize the approach based on their own requirements, but very broadly, there are two, um, two types. One is unstructured privacy threat modeling, and the other one is structured. Um, so for unstructured privacy threat modeling, like it's, it's essentially a brainstorming exercise where you get a diverse group of, group of people together and you answer the four threat modeling questions. And because this is open-ended, it often results in very creative, but hard to address threats. Um, it's also like not repeatable and highly dependent on the knowledge and skills of the participants. The structured privacy threat modeling is, is, is recommended. Um, it, it includes creating a consistent and repeatable process for thinking about what can go wrong um, from an attacker perspective, from an asset perspective, or from a data flow perspective. Mm -hmm. And it, I imagine, you know, once you have performed this type of process, it's not like a, a one-time activity, but something that's like an iterative process that just like, like developing a product or something like that, that's going to require regular review and updates and, you know, continuously update the, the, uh, based on, you know, threat landscape and new risks. So how could, how should companies be thinking about setting up a process where you can actually continually iterate and evolve the model? Yes. Like it's one of the biggest misconception is, um, it's, it's like a one and done process where you only do it at the, at the design stage. But um, risks are evolving as well as uh, the systems are continuous, continuing to change, especially in an agile environment. So it's essential to 
make risk modeling sort of part of the software development life cycle and address it on a continuous basis. Every time you answer the fourth question is, um, how can we, like, did we do a good enough job? That is essentially where you evaluate how can this process be improved? Can we build some tests to proactively find these type of threats in the future? Um, are there some um, learning gaps or uh, resource gaps that should be addressed? So as, as part of the threat modeling itself, it includes this continuous feedback and improvement process. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like you know, there's this misconception around that is kind of like one and done. What are some of the other you know, potential misconceptions when it comes to a privacy threat modeling and how do you, would you go about like addressing those? Um, the, the, the first misconception is privacy threat modeling is some sort of like novel practice. Um, it's been around for over 20 years. Um, Linden, which is the most common privacy threat modeling framework has been around for a decade. NIST, um, cybersecurity framework, privacy framework, the secure um, software development standard, they all reference um, leveraging threat modeling. So it's, it's not something new. Um, the second misconception is that you need a large team of privacy threat modeling experts. Um, while knowing, uh, while knowing the, the system architecture and privacy threat landscape is required for threat modeling, everyone participating does not need to be an expert. The exercise itself is intended to be an educational tool that helps the team get better with every iteration. Does this misconception around like uh, some kind of requirement of having like a large team, does that prevent essentially people from making forward momentum on actually doing privacy threat modeling because they think that, oh, well, just to get started, essentially, we're gonna have to do this heavy investment of building out like a really big team. Yes, that's actually one of the biggest uh, factors where where teams struggle to get buy-in from from leadership because there's an assumption that you will need to hire 10 privacy threat modeling experts to even get started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you're you're essentially just like making the problem worse by like uh, choosing to, to not do anything, <laughs> even if yeah. it's like a lighter weight process. Um, actually, like one of the um, the values or like the principles of privacy threat modeling, which is uh, covered in the privacy threat modeling manifesto is doing threat modeling rather than talking about it. So, yeah. so let's just get started. Right. Yeah. Like have a bias for action because yeah. doing something's better than doing nothing. So you mentioned that, you know, good practice for companies that are going to be doing this and, and also a way to avoid requiring having like a, a really big team, dedicated team to this is to involve various stakeholders within the company. So um, what are, you know, besides essentially being able to, to scale to more resources, what are some of the other, you know, benefits that might, you might actually receive by involving other people within the process that aren't necessarily the, the pure privacy team? Sure. Um, since privacy is inherently cross-functional, it benefits from having diverse stakeholders involved in the threat modeling process. 
common participants in these uh, threat modeling exercises are developers, uh, software architects, engineers, security engineers, testers, privacy engineers, privacy TPMs, product managers, legal. It, it's it's everyone you can think of that's associated with privacy or security. Uh, so involving a diverse team helps identify design flaws early. Um, it enhances coverage and helps build uh, as privacy into SDLC and, and make more informed trade-offs. Another benefit of performing threat modeling exercises together is it helps remove the culture of blame because you're doing it as part of a team, it's the team exercise and 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 everybody learns from each other. Yeah, I think that is a, a really great point. And that's great advice, I think, for anybody that wants to do anything within, within a company is like, if you bring, bring people into the process, then essentially they become a stakeholder in the process and bought into that. So they have you know, essentially like skin in the game and they can't, you know, essentially just, uh, you know, point a finger to to uh, something that like they feel is like blocking their ability to to do their work because they were involved in essentially creating the process to to begin with. Absolutely, I I think we have to move away from this um, going to privacy and asking them to approve uh, a feature or um, an idea, and it has to be like okay, let's get in a room together and figure out what can go wrong. Yeah, I feel like so much of the 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 world's problems and also like problems within business could be solved if you just put the right people in the room together to have that conversation from the beginning. Yes. So once you've actually gone through the process of, of doing the privacy threat model and, and you've identified certain issues, how do you go about like actually addressing and fixing those issues? Um, so once you've identified the threats, um, the threat scoring and prioritizing is independent from the modeling itself. So you can use any prioritization technique that works for your company. Um, prioritization of the fixes can be based on threat likelihood or impact of harm. Sometimes it's like difficult to quantify likelihood and harm of these. There are some uh, risk scoring techniques published by NIST and OWASP, which can be used to quantify or attempt to quantify these. Um, I've seen some organizations decide to prioritize certain categories of threats over others. Uh, for example, uh, focusing on privacy non-compliance threats over, over other threats like linkability, for example. Some organizations uh, leverage threat target data sensitivity for prioritization. So if you have a, a database with SSNs in it, maybe threats to that database would be prioritized over um, some other non-sensitive data um, resource. Um, and once the prioritization is performed, I, I think like for each threat, similar to risk modeling, you have to you have to figure out whether you want to eliminate the threat, mitigate it, transfer it, maybe by having the end user change some settings or accept the risk because the mitigation is unfeasible. Mm -hmm. So it sounds a little bit like doing uh, like a product prioritization uh, exercise where you're, you know, you're figuring out 
in this case, you know, in product, it might be, you know, what is the thing that's going to have the most impact and then balancing that with like the amount of resources that you have to actually dedicate to delivering it. But with this, it's, it's looking at, you know, where are our biggest, you know, risks or threats balancing probably like how can we actually address it and what's the effort around that? Absolutely. It's, it's the same basic principle. And then how does, essentially, uh, you know, something like privacy mo threat modeling differ from other types of risk assessments, like a security risk assessment? Is there a unique challenge with privacy threat modeling versus some of these other types of risk assessments? Yes. Um, so I think of privacy threat modeling as a risk management technique. Uh, ultimately, the goal is to prevent privacy harms from happening. Uh, what sets privacy threat modeling apart from other assessments is that it focuses on what can go wrong before making the decisions on the trade-offs. And it is primarily driven by engineers versus compliance or legal experts. Um, a unique challenge in that privacy threat modeling uh, focuses on identifying threats that, are, that can result in privacy harm to the individual or the consumer while all the other assessments, including security threat modeling, focuses on identifying risks to the organization or threats to the organization. So for example, like a breach. Mm -hmm. um, there may be situations where the organization itself is a threat actor for privacy. For example, if you're a data broker, the organization itself um, is harming. Um, privacy of their customers or, or data that it, they have collected information about. Yeah, so it sounds like in a lot of ways, like the, um, essentially the lens of who is impacted by the risk is different if we're talking about like a security uh, risk, uh, security risk assessment versus something like a privacy threat model. Like in a privacy threat model, it might be more about the end user of your business versus security risk assessment is you're looking at, you know, what is the risk from like a, you know, infrastructure standpoint. Correct. And that's where most security um, professionals struggle with doing privacy threat modeling because it's difficult for them to sort of um, have that mind shift change to focus on the individual rather than like what they're trained to do and like focusing on the the infrastructure or the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you could be thinking about like, well, like our, our systems are locked down, but then you're not necessarily thinking about what is the, the, the impact to collecting certain information about an individual. Correct. So what, what are some of the challenges you've encountered with when conducting privacy threat modeling or and how have you overcome some of those challenges? Um, the biggest challenge is often getting buy-in to even put a privacy threat modeling in program in place. Uh, unfortunately, privacy threat modeling has a reputation of being labor-intensive, long drawn-out process, which requires dedicated expert teams. And because it's still not widely adopted in small or mid-sized organizations, its value is not readily understood, especially if, if organizations are relying on some sort of like benchmarking to set their privacy strategies. Since you don't see a lot of others performing it, it's not always top of mind. Um, 
so we we used a data driven approach to build the case for privacy threat modeling at a healthcare organization uh, based on prior experience my team demonstrated that more than 70% of the reported bugs vulnerabilities identified by researchers and privacy audit findings in a 2 year time frame could have been identified by a threat model and leveraging that data and quantifying the return on investment helped get the project funded and started. Hey there, Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. Yeah, I think that's really sound advice for you know essentially anybody who wants to do anything in any type of business where uh, even outside of something like privacy threat modeling, it's you really need to be able to articulate the value of what it is that you want to invest in from like a business perspective. Like how does it save the company money? How does it deliver more revenue or something like that? Even if there's other reasons for doing it, but that's kind of typically what helps get programs essentially funded and prioritized within any org- within any organization. Yeah, and I think with the current landscape, um it's even getting more difficult to get funding. So building a good use case and and showing the ROI is is always going to be better when you're asking for a, a new program to be put in place. Yeah, absolutely. And then for for companies that are looking to maybe get started with implementing privacy threat modeling what sort of advice would you give them to to kind of get one of those programs off the ground um i'll use some doordash values to structure the this advice um first is choose optimism and have a plan building a robust privacy threat modeling program takes years so uh, but you will begin to see signals very early within a few months so use the metrics threats identified proactive remediations rework cost saves um to mature the program and show value if there is an existing architecture review board or some sort of um privacy or security center of excellence it's good to start there uh the second advice is um is to get 1% better perform retros continue to adapt the privacy threat modeling program so that it works for your organization it's okay to start with a lightweight unstructured brainstorming approach before moving to a more in-depth analysis and um the last advice i have is to be customer obsessed doing privacy threat modeling means the organization cares very deeply about its customers and potential privacy harms to them so f- fixing identified issues proactively um is good for the business in what stage of a company does this typically start to uh, become something that they should look to prioritize i don't think there is a a particular like stage in mind i i mean i would say the earlier you start the the better it is the the more progress you make the more privacy debt you keep accumulating and 
you lose sight of what is the privacy posture. So even if you're a very early stage startup, I think putting some lightweight threat modeling program in place is, is going to have high value in the long run. Yeah, and I'm sure it's going to eventually actually uh, accelerate your speed of execution because at some point you're going to accumulate so much of essentially this like privacy debt that uh, just getting a handle on the problem is, is going to be really, really difficult and super time consuming. Yeah, and it's expensive. There are ways to do um, post-deployment threat modeling or just like a look back sort of threat modeling, but there's so many unknowns at this point developers are no longer there people who built it the documentation doesn't exist it's it's like 10 times more difficult to do it at that point Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and then for companies that are maybe they they are early stage and they don't necessarily have a dedicated you know privacy professional to uh you know lead one of these efforts is there other people like does it make sense essentially for uh, them to look for somebody within the, the company that's willing to you know put up their hand essentially and learn a little bit about this so that they can put in a lightweight process? Yeah, I feel uh, security is a good place to start. Security teams are more familiar with uh, security threat modeling, so it may be easier for them to put some guardrails and put some, some process in place till, till privacy uh, resources are hired. Um, anyone can learn privacy threat modeling. Uh, there are a lot of resources out there and you get better with, with practice. So, so I, I, I don't think it's a blocker if you don't have a dedicated resource or a team yet. Mm-hmm. What are some of those resources that someone interested in starting to try to learn more about this should take a look at? Sure. Uh, for anybody who's interested in learning, um, Adam Shostak's book on threat modeling and his blog are great resources to start. That is how I got started. Um, Jason Kronk's book on strategic privacy by design is, I feel like, the only book that explores privacy threat modeling in detail and is also highly recommended. Um, another good resource specific to privacy threat modeling is Linden Privacy Framework. There is a lot of resources around how to gamify it, um, um, methodologies, uh, enablers, how-to guides, which sort of give a step-by-step process um, to adopt. Awesome. And I will uh, include links to those in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you should be able to find those links somewhere in your your podcatcher and, and check those out. And then how do you see privacy threat modeling sort of evolving in the future? Uh, First, I believe industrial adoption of privacy threat modeling will pick up. Uh, Privacy teams are evolving from strictly legal and compliance function into uh, privacy engineering and technical privacy reviews. So as teams mature, I expect privacy threat modeling to become more mainstream across industries. Uh, Second, I'm excited about emerging research in this area, particularly about privacy threat modeling enablers for practitioners, um, specifically talking about MITRE's privacy threat modeling taxonomy and patterns. Uh, I attended a few talks recently about it, and I'm eagerly waiting for the release of these uh, enablers. Um, And third, 
privacy threat modeling, automation, and sophistication of the tools is growing. It would be interesting to see how well these adopt to uh, privacy use cases and emergency uh, and emerging uh, trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, outside even outside of privacy threat modeling, are there you know future um, you know technologies or innovations in the privacy space that you're particularly excited about? Uh, I'm generally excited about everything in the privacy space, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm very interested in knowing how um, AI bias and and a lot of data strategy work is being folded into privacy. It's coming into privacy realms, so it looks like privacy is is evolving outside of uh, core like just compliance to say more data ethics and um, data use or trust functions. So I'm, I'm excited about this general shift in the scope and um, coverage of privacy programs at organizations. Yeah, I think with all the um, you know interest and investment right now in, in generative AI and all the hype around ChatGPT, I think this questions around, uh, you know, Privacy and ethics for AI is is something that's like really starting to get a lot of uh, visibility in sort of the zeitgeist as well, and it's an ever evolving subject and, and topic that is something I, I think that's like growing much faster than anyone would have uh, expected because of how hot this topic has suddenly has suddenly become. Yes, I think we're all struggling to keep up with <laughs> with with frameworks, regulatory updates. Um, and just like trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the speed of innovation is moving faster than uh, essentially the people can regulate uh, the, the innovation. And then is there anything else that you'd like to share? Um, I mean, I, I want to end on a positive note. I want to say that privacy threat modeling can be fun. There are some card games that allow you to approach privacy threat modeling in, um, in a fun way. And you can also use some improv style, fortunately, unfortunately scenarios, for example. Fortunately, we're using dynamic masking to secure PII. Unfortunately, masking policy can be reversed by 50 power users. <laughs> so uh, it, it can be fun and it doesn't have to be this, this sort of like checklist sort of questionnaire exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's key, right? There's lots of things that... Uh... With a little bit of effort, you can make make uh, much more fun and then drive a lot more value out of it too, because you'll get more people involved and interested in participating. Plus one to that. <laughs> uh, Nanditas, thanks so much for, for being here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, hopefully you'll come back. I, I think this was well worth the wait. And uh, again, thanks for being here and cheers. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to more podcast episodes I've been following and uh, it's been incredibly helpful. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.